Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that everybody in your company should be aligned with your customer value or aligned with the exit. Uh, Today, I am thrilled to have a gentleman from across the pond, um, Marcus Kauke. Marcus is a friend, wise guy, and overall smart man, and I am thrilled to have you. Marcus, welcome. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. So Marcus is, uh, he's got a couple of things going. He's a chief revenue officer, a fractional chief revenue officer. He's also the, the chairman of a, uh, a company that I, I want to explore a little bit. It's sales driven, which is uh, better than lead gen. Is that fair, fair to say? Yeah, it's, it's intelligent lead generation. Um, I, I'd like to learn more about that or whatever else you want to, Whatever else you want to share to introduce yourself to our listeners. Excellent. Okay, so 35 years in sales, co-authored a book a few years ago called Making Channel Sales Work, which was all about selling through third parties. Um, Before we wrote the book, we didn't realize that 70% of all products sold on the planet today are sold through partners. Now, when we did the research for the book, there were 150 titles on Amazon around the channel, and there were 364,000 around direct sales. And it struck us that there was a big disparity there. So a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few years has been looking at uh, going through third parties, strategic alliances, channel partners, that kind of thing and looking at ways of doing less but better on purpose. I'm yeah, intrinsically I, lazy. Yeah, I, when I was uh, with the, the big methodology shop, we had uh, we actually acquired a channel methodology and uh, that was that's a specialized area. Uh, again, uh, the majority of the company's revenue and emphasis was on direct sales, but a majority of commerce is through channels. And mm-hmm. um, maybe we were, maybe that company was trying to do uh, better by trying to do less. And <laughs> yeah. um, so, sometimes you have to do more in order to get to the point where you can do less. Yeah. Um, well, and, yeah. And, and the basic thing with the channels is that now you've got. Uh, another set of um, criteria, another another party who has to win, and y- you you certainly have to have products and services that help your cu- help your the end user or the end customers win, but every partner along that channel pathway has to have a win as well. It has to be a reason for them to carry your product. It has to be easy for them to sell the product. Um, it has to be as important to them as it is to you. And the the problem is that you're probably one of a dozen, or if you're getting to distributor level, one of tens of thousands of 
different SKUs that um, they're playing with. So why would they give a damn about you over anyone else? How are you going to help them achieve their bigger objective? And this is where I think a lot of people get collaborative selling wrong, that they think it's about selling more of their own products, but it's not. Um, if you help other people to sell all of their portfolio, you're a natural pull through and they pull you through without any friction. Yeah. Um, the, pro the problem is that most vendors have a tendency to try and push their own message. And in a crowded, noisy marketplace, you just get drowned out. Yeah. Uh, on a plane, I, I got seated next to a fellow who was the president of a company that makes the store brand pizzas. So when you go into your favorite uh, grocery, uh, the store brand pizzas were made by this gentleman's company. And yeah. he was extolling how important his success with his retailer was around uh, the quality of the ingredient. And the reason they want that is because there's about $22.13 on average of additional buy that they make. So I said, well, that means you don't sell pizzas, you sell traffic. And now in your success with this retailer is about cross-promoting the beer and cross-promoting the garlic nuts and selling a dessert, some cinnamon rolls and uh, having a soda pop, you know, a, a, pep, a two liter bottle of Pepsi along with that sale of that pizza. And so you have to make, uh, make that sale easier and cross-promote that makes you more of what you are to that retailer. Is that, am I, am I getting the basic idea? Uh, absolutely. You know, your partners are in business for their reasons, not your reasons. They get up in the morning and go to work for their reasons, not your reasons. And your product is at best an incidental interruption in most cases, unless you find a way to make your, your contribution more valuable to them. So when they see your name pop up on caller ID, they take that call and they interrupt whatever they're doing to take that call rather than put it straight through to voicemail or ghost you. Yeah. I, how, how, do you, how do you turn up and represent so much value that they will um, stop a call with their most important customer to take it from you? Yeah, I was talking with a fellow who's a CEO of a small housewares, a small appliance company. And he had been a vice president um, purchasing for one of the big department stores. And he founded his appliance company on the premise that we are going to be, and we are going to focus on adding value to the retailer. Uh, and so that, that company was, became the one that the retailer wanted to pick up the call, wanted to partner with, wanted to do something with because that re that appliance company uh, recognizes that they're in business to make the retailers and make their channel successful. Absolutely. You've got to be ready to make the other person the hero. Um, and what people don't really understand is that the channel is the toughest sales job there is. Your only currency are influence and trust. And the net result of that is that you have to earn that trust. And it can be earned quite quickly, um, but you have to turn up 
mean what you say and do what you say you're going to do. Um, be very clear about expectation setting and setting boundaries. Um, a, a lot of the working channel um, can feel uh, like refereeing other people's children some of the time. Yeah. And um, it, it's challenging because everybody comes with their own agenda. Yeah. And so you have to be a consummate diplomat. Um, you've got to be able to find the common ground. And that's not something you give to a greenhorn salesperson who's never sold before. Yeah. Um, it's not something you give to someone who is a selfish producer. Yeah. So I, I don't want to make that channel salesperson a different animal than a direct salesperson, but I do want to say it's, it is the same skill set. make the other person a hero. Um, your only currency is, is influence and persuasion. Uh, you're just working on a narrower high wire off of a, you know, that's hung higher with a smaller net. Um, it, it's the same skills, but there is, they, there's fewer, there's less margin for error and, and going slightly astray, um, the, the wheels come off in, in a much bigger hurry when you're indirect. It certainly can be that way. And when you look at the scale of the targets that those people carry, um, often you're moving the decimal point one or two uh, figures to the right. Um, it, it's a significant responsibility. And the role of a channel manager is closer to a general manager than they are to a VP of sales. And a channel chief is much closer to a chief executive than they are to a VP of sales as well. Um, so you're, you're carrying your own P&L. It's you know, like you're running your own business. Yeah. And um, it requires somebody who's very good at getting discretionary effort from others. And these are life skills. I absolutely agree with you that the ideal channel manager would thrive in a direct or indirect role um, because they have good planning and good strategic thinking. Um, they are organized. They're capable of orchestrating other people to do certain things at the right time and choreographing that conversation um, so that when it gets passed from one person to the next, there's some continuity and that transition feels smooth. Yeah. Um, th these are all skills that no matter what sales role you're in will uh, benefit you. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're very, very scarce. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. So I want to switch gears a little bit, uh, maybe switch gears a lot. And you and I have, have talked and I've been on your podcast and we found that we're very much kindred spirits and I want you to, I've been on this tear for the last couple of months, and I want you to maybe talk me off a ledge if I'm taking this point too far. And um, as somebody who does a lot of work in top of funnel work and chief marketing, uh, you know, a CRO for hire or a fractional CRO, I've started to talk about top of the funnel as potentially misleading because customers are engaging us, the, a vendor, later and later in their buying process. So what's top of funnel is middle to even the final half of their buying process. And if we forget that, 
salespeople forget to say, please just take me go back further into your buying process before. And so um, I, I have started using with my customers, instead of a funnel, uh, I've started to use an infinity loop or the flywheel, where the funnel represents half to three quarters, somewhere depending on the company, half to three quarters of the left hand portion of an, a, fig, a figure eight on its side or an infinity loop. Uh, our funnel is a very small portion of the customer's ongoing journey. And uh, we, need to, we need to broaden our idea of what the customer has been doing. So uh, am, I, am I getting too far into the weeds with that? No, I, I, I'm probably going to push you over the ledge, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, the far too few sellers really understand the customer's journey. And I'm plagiarizing um, Colin Shaw on this one. When he talks about the customer's journey, um, the McDonald's employee sees the customer journey when the customer turns up to the squawk box, places their order, drives to the next window, pays their money, drives to the next window, picks up their food and drives away. The customer's journey begins way, way back when the kids are kicking off. I'm hungry. How come McDonald's? And eventually you crack and you pile them into the back of the van. And World War Three is breaking out. The decibel levels up to about 98, which is like a small jet engine. Um, they're fighting. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You get to the back of the queue. There are eight cars ahead of you that you can see. Um, and they're fighting. Oh, how long is this going to take? I'm hungry. Um, and eventually you get to the second to the, to the um, front and you take their order. You start placing the order. They change their mind. The person the other end doesn't speak English as their first language. The sound on the squawk box isn't very good. You're not sure that the order you've given is right. You get through to the next window. The best bit, the whole journey is when you pay your money. Um, the next bit, you drive up and you're thinking, did they get my order right? They changed it. Should I check? But there are 12 cars behind you. So you feel the pressure. You drive off. Um, a few minutes later, one of them's got to fry up their nose. You drive to A&E. Um, then uh, you have to get rid of the packaging. That's the customer journey. And the problem is that most vendors don't see it like that. They just see the bit that they're involved in. And um, you and I talked about this, and I thought it was really profound, um, that every job in the company needs to understand what impact they have on the customer. And I think the customer's journey needs to start with the roots and you know, grassroots um, exploration of what the customer's buying journey really looks like. What, what are the centers of dissatisfaction that start to develop? Um, how can we help them recognize when they may need our help when they don't even know it? Um, these are the kind of things that we all need to be involved in from marketing, through lead gen, through sales, through customer success, through the account growth team, into the product development team, leadership, management, finance, they all need to be part of that process, yeah. but very few of them are. Yeah, tech support, accounts receivable. Yeah. <laughs> and on and on. Um, because the right-hand side of that flywheel, right, where the left-hand side is, I realize I've got some uh, status quo is no longer acceptable. I've tried to figure out why, why, what to do about it, who to do it with, which one, and then uh, install. Um, and you know, I... I 
invoke the split screen of that moment where they decide who they're going to install on one side is the sales floor where they're ringing bells and high-fiving on the other side um, a buyer is breaking into a cold sweat because now they're accountable for something and so the the right hand side of that infinity loop is where you install where you get to learn how to use it where you get trained where you become competent where you become successful where you, it becomes part of your flow and where you start thinking, what else can I do? How can I improve this flow? How can this partner help me improve my flow even more because it was such a great experience? And that is the trigger point of saying the new status quo is now not as good as I want it to be. And you're well, off to a new sale. The, but this is one of the really interesting things that I think old thinking means that we have to look at things the wrong way. Um, what, what, what baffles me is why we spend most of our marketing dollars and most of our resource on the least efficient way of generating business. We focus on the cold market, but we know that the best customers that we ever have are the ones that are hand delivered to us by people who are trusted by both sides. And um, they, introduce us and it's a hot introduction and the sale is quick and there's very little resistance and um, we also know that those relationships that we've nurtured over time and we've represented value to consistently when they move from passive to active looking we're at the top of the tree already um, yeah. then there's referrals and then somewhere right down is cold um, but it costs 18 times, sorry, um, on average, you close 18 times more frequently when you're hand delivered by a, a trusted third party. Um, the cost of sale is eight to 10 times less, and it takes a quarter to half as long. Now, why is it that everyone focuses and fixates on the wrong end of the problem? Why are we not focusing on how do we always sell hot? No, I, I completely agree that I have another uh, hot button. Maybe you can talk me out of this or reinforce it is that um, Peter Drucker said that the purpose of a business is to find and keep a customer. I maintain that the purpose of a business is to deliver a customer more value than it costs to receive. So if that's the purpose of your business, um, now let's look, let's go to the CEO and ask you of all the metrics you have on your dashboard, uh, all the things that you're tracking on a daily, weekly, or quarterly basis, how many of them have to do with the ultimate purpose of your business? How much value you've delivered are delivering to customers? Look uh, again, again, you know, the logic of that statement uh, is irrefutable, but very few people pay any attention to it. If you build, you exist because of your customers, not in spite of them. They're not an inconvenient afterthought at the end of a long chain of abuse that you've made them. Um, they are the reason for your existence. And if you are not consistently not only adding value for today, but also staying ahead of where they are and meeting them where they're going to be, um, then you become irrelevant very quickly. And as Bob Mester says, people don't buy your product outright. They rent it for the outcome. And they rent it only for as long as the outcome is relevant. And it's our job as sellers to spend our time close to our customers to understand what are their struggling moments today and what are they going to struggle with next. 
if, if we aren't staying relevant, then we're just leaving the door open for a competitor. And, and so to make your point even more firmly, retaining customers is absolutely critical. If you're losing 15% of your customers per annum, on average, that means you have to replace 49% of your customers every three years. That's insane. You know, when, when I teach my salespeople to prospect, they're prospecting for a customer who'll be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years' time. They're not prospecting for someone who will make their quota this quarter. Um, that should have been done months ago. That's, what, that's where that problem began. It's not a problem that occurred now. Yeah. Uh, all we're seeing is a symptom of it. Yeah, I was talking with a CEO uh, who said, you know, I can tell when that deal first comes in, or I can tell before the deal comes first comes in, whether a customer is going to be a one and done or whether we're going to build a, a relationship. So I asked him, how are you paying for those differently to your salespeople? How are you incentivizing your salespeople to not to stop going after the one and dones? And he just kind of said, we get paid the same and they've got a perverse incentive to not care. Whose fault is that, that they've got those perverse incentives? Well, precisely. But again, the, the money behind an organization permeates through, the, uh, through its culture. And if the culture is one that is fi fixated on just increasing the false valuation and making a hasty exit, you're not going to build a sustainable business. What you're going to build is an engine to exit. And that has its legitimate place, I suppose. Uh, but what you're not, and don't ever kid yourself into thinking that you're building a sound business. You're building an asset that you can flip. Um, but that's building a business on very, very weak foundations. So whilst money is cheap, it works. Um, but when the money supply uh, runs out, then there are going to be an awful lot of companies that, have been, um, that go to the wall and a lot of customers left high and dry. Yeah, you know, that whole re uh, customer retention, I've, uh, I've heard that uh, COVID made customer retention tension um even more critical because it's so hard now the yeah. the the travel and the uh relationship building headwinds that covid uh put in our way means that that eight to ten times harder uh became probably a bigger number because landing net new business um causes our outside salespeople to have built great skills as inside salespeople, as remote salespeople. And uh, those, that's, not a, that's not a trivial thing to transition those skill sets and to win net new business, uh, especially when every new business, every new customer you're chasing is worried about the future. Well, I, I think there's, uh, again, a misnomer here um breathing someone else's air is not a superpower um and a lot of direct salespeople thought that that was their killer um killer app and you know, they could turn up and magically charm people out of their money it's not like that the reality is you still got to turn up and provide value and if you end up in um, a price conversation chances are you haven't delivered enough value if you end up in a stall or chasing, you've not created enough value for them to prioritize whatever it is that you're selling. So look in the mirror. Um, you know, I, I think there's far too little reflection time. That's no, why I'm Mark so excited about uh, technologies like Refract and Gong, 
um, you know, the, these technologies allow you to self-reflect and to look at your own performance and compare it with uh, others who are um, performing better in the market. So you can start to see for yourself what a car crash it is to be on the receiving end of your terrible sales pitch. Yeah, uh, that, thanks for clarifying that, Mark. Because I was, I was kind of getting at the point that so many uh, salespeople, outside salespeople, rely on the quality of the relationship when they should be relying on the value. And um, it used to be the domain of the elite salespeople to add value. Um, but now it's going to be the domain of the survivors. And so all the people who were marginal become failures. And that, I think that's what I was getting at, not the fact that um, um, it's, sales is different. It's, elite sales has always been the same thing. It's just that um, mediocre sales is no longer effective. I, th I think mediocre sales has definitely had its day um, and it'll be replaced by intelligent marketing. Um, I think the top of the funnel to a large extent is going to become uh, the domain of really smart marketers and far more seasoned salespeople um, because it's so important and it shouldn't be left to the most junior people who left, are there uh, left to sink or swim. It's a crashing waste on every side. Um, but I think there's at least the technology is now arriving that allows you to have much greater insight before you pick up the phone as to whether or not you should be speaking to certain prospects yeah. uh, at the moment. Um, but again, there's this old school die hard, um, just throw more effort at it. And it's, yeah, they're, they're fighting the, the First World War. They're, they're trying to hide behind this Maginot line of, um, you know, throw lots of money at the problem um, and do more dials and do more demos and send out more proposals. But it's just more noise because yeah. it's not addressing the real issue, which is a total lack of value or relevance. Yeah, uh, which actually provides a, a good point for a segue into lead generation um, and fighting the fast, the last war. Uh, I, I think everybody who's a listener here is headed up to here with uh, people who reached out on LinkedIn and then immediately start selling. And the lead gen uh, that we practice and the, the lead gen that it's easy to buy um, is well suited toward maybe a sale that is a low entry point sale where we start with somebody low enough in the organization that they'll actually accept that kind of a call, but not an executive. Um, and you've got a, a lead gen company uh, and I'm interested that you, you're, you're doing lead gen, but you also know that lead gen can't be the kind of lead gen that's fighting the, the last war. Tell us about that a little bit. Well, there's point and shoot AI that allows you to map specific populations. And so you can identify people by their shape, if you like. So a loyal customer may have the shape of a donut. Um, and if you then run your data 
your prospect list through that um, ideal customer profile, then you can look for people who share those traits of loyalty. And um, you can start looking at certain personality uh, characteristics that are likely to drive and motivate that individual purchaser. Um, now, what this means is that you can take a list of 10,000 and narrow it down almost instantaneously to 257 who have a score that makes them probably um, somebody who will engage positively with you should you try and contact them directly. And if you clean the list to identify people who pick up, um, then you arbitrage um, the dial. Um, so all the dead dial time is outsourced to somebody else. You can now move your SDRs from number of conversations per day to number of conversations per hour. And quality of conversations? And the quality of conversations is at least as high, if not higher, because as you repeatedly run the data um, through the ideal customer profile, the lists go from maybe one to 3% viable uh, up to 20 or 30 or 40% viable. Yeah. Uh, does that mean that the, the job of the SDR actually changes a little bit? Because if you're talking to a higher percentage of the right people, now the SDR's job is less get them off the phone as quickly to somebody who has a clue about our business and what we sell and our outcomes to teach the SDR to have the initial talk about those outcomes. Exactly. And make that a much more satisfying and fulfilling job because instead of getting three minutes of productive time a day, um, I, I've just released my interview with Chris Beal, uh, the founder of Connect and Sell, and they do 40 million cold calls a year. Um, so they've got a good statistical base. And his finding is that the average SDR is 0.000625% productive in any given working day. Oh. Exactly. Now, imagine any other department where that was considered to be reasonable. <laughs> Within three orders of magnitude. It's ludicrous. Yeah. Um, 625 thousandths of a percent yeah. a day. Yeah. And, and so what I was getting at with that low entry point sale is that the only kind of customer who's likely to accept a call from an SDR whose mindset is, oh my God, they're talking to me. Now I got to get them like as quickly as possible to somebody who has a clue about my company who somebody who can have, because they aren't equipped to have a conversation with the customer, a quality conversation with the customer. And they're desperately saying, oh, let me get you on a demo without saying what's important about the demo that I'm about to get you in front uh, of. Absolutely. And this is where I think um, there needs to be a radical shakeup of the way learning is uh, delivered within organizations. We've got to stop calling it training, which is something you do to animals, um, and make it learning. So the ownership is on the individual. Um, and 
there needs to be a shift away from um, these awful classroom training sessions, which are basically just uh, feed them from the fire hose and hope some of it is retained. And that's the wrong metric. Why, why do I care how much is remembered six months later? What I actually care about and what I paid for is did my results improve? Did the behavior change? Yeah, uh, but what I'm, what I'm what I'm paying for is the result yeah. to improve. I'm I am firmly of the belief that there are two kinds of training: a knowledge transfer, which is where are the bathrooms, how do you use our system to fill out a bid, uh, who is your manager, which way to SD, which way to HR. That's knowledge transfer. Uh, you can give the information, and it's pretty much in the proper format. Uh, right, you know, when you've given the training, but most sales training is a different kind of training and it is behavior change and behavior modification where that training event, if you will, is introducing the learner to the behavior that's going to be expected in the future. Well, that, and, that's and now, you've got to, now, now you've got to follow it up with coaching and observation and reinforcement. And uh, so that the, the learning event might be introducing the behavior I'm about to start coaching. It should be. But the reality is that a vast majority of it is product-orientated training. Um, And so they talk about the product, which no one cares about. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what, I really want a new server. It's, It's something I've been coveting since I was a child. (laughs) Um, and and now um my you know my bucket list can be uh, fulfilled yeah and we've just i mean we've gone over time and i would love to spend some time on just the topic of changing product training from speeds and feeds features and benefits to customers we serve customer outcomes we achieve and this differentiation drives this outcome so if you find a customer who wants who covets that outcome they are our rightful customer because we're the only one who delivers that because of this feature absolutely if you're capable of doing that then that's the kind of stuff that customers care about but they don't care how long you've been uh, trading who your investors are and they really don't care that ibm and capgemini are your customers when they're a mom and pop outfit out of backwater arkansas yeah it's not relevant yeah they might actually fear that because they know uh, how far how far uh, in towards the back of the line they're going to be for any customer service requests. Precisely. Marcus, uh, we have had a great conversation. How can people get a hold of you to learn more? Um, direct message me on LinkedIn. There are two Marcus Kalkis. One of them is a very nice gentleman in Essex who does recruitment. And the other one is a fat, bald old chap who looks grumpy. Um, and uh, you can email me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Great. Marcus, uh, as usual, a great conversation with you. Thank you so much. Uh, And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that sales and marketing are a lot more like brain surgery than you initially thought. Thanks, (laughs) and have a high-value day. Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customer's outcomes, 
You're bound to be paying your dues Cause you'll be singing those old Don't know about you blue This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.